you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 17. We've been in a sermon series that we've been tracing the life of Christ chronologically, and uh, we are at Christ's final week. Um, This series that we're going through right now is called The Final Steps, because this is Christ's final week from, uh, from the triumphal entry, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And there have been a lot of events that have happened, and a lot of them actually happened on Thursday, Thursday night, especially with the Passover, um, where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper, this last Passover meal with his disciples, um, where we covered the betrayal of Judas. We talked about the washing of the disciples' feet and uh, how Jesus responded to this issue of who is the greatest by showing them who is the greatest servant. Last week, we talked about this Q&A between Jesus and the disciples, um, how the different questions that the three disciples asked. And today, we are now in John chapter 17. Have you ever said to yourself or to someone else, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that room? Maybe somebody you don't like at work was about to get chewed out by the big boss. And you were like, yes, they're going to get it. Man, I would love to be a fly on the wall to hear them get ripped to shreds. Hopefully not. But it's possible, just depending on how antagonistic they were. Maybe um, you have a favorite TV show that you watch, and there's this one episode that is just like the funniest, the most brilliant episode. And you're like, man, I wish there was a fly on the wall when they were figuring out, when they were coming up with that episode, just to be in the room, or man, to be a fly in the wall when this famous had this idea for this book or whatever. Well, there, whatever it may be, there are times when we would just love to hear a private conversation to see how it went. And the Bible actually lets us do that on several occasions. John chapter 17 is one of them. And so the message today is the priority of unity. And you, in your bulletins, there's a little insert. You can fill in some blanks to follow along. Now, many Bibles consider John 17, they call it, if there's a header, it may be in your Bible, the high priestly prayer. And this is what Jesus is doing. This is actually the longest prayer that Jesus prays in the Bible, as as recorded in the Bible. Um, This is the Son of God talking to the Father God, and the disciples are firsthand witnesses to the things that Jesus says to the Father. And so when this prayer was over, it was going to be late Thursday evening. And Jesus would lead his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane to begin the most dramatic 18 hours of their lives. Now, before we dig into John 17, let's backtrack just a little bit into John 16. Jesus had to deliver some bad news to the disciples, but he also gave them good news as well, if they were willing to listen. So John 16, verses 32 through 33, this is what it says. Behold, Jesus is speaking. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. First, Judas betrayed Jesus, and he left the Passover meal. Then Jesus prophesied Peter's betrayal, regardless of the adamant objection that Peter gave. And here, Jesus prophesied that all the disciples would be scattered, that all of them would run away, and they would leave Jesus alone. Now, this had to shock the disciples because they had not left Jesus' side for the better part of three years. Every time Jesus turned around, the disciples were there. They were following him. They didn't want to leave him. They wanted to be in his presence. And so the statement that Jesus made to them, you will leave me alone, is such an indictment against them. He told them that the moment was coming soon when they would abandon Jesus to save their own skin. Even in predicting their betrayal of Christ, he gave them comfort. He gave them this information in advance so that they would have peace. Now, this word peace in the Greek also means tranquility. And so if you think about it, a tranquil sea is completely calm. No waves, no ripples, no restlessness. There are no disruptions to it. There's nothing troubling the water. It is still and peaceful. In preparation of their betrayal, that's what Jesus gave the disciples, that kind of peace. I can't even wrap my brain around that kind of spiritual maturity. I know how I behave when people talk about me behind my back, when people criticize me or betray me. It's not this way. I don't give peace ahead of time when someone is going to betray me or criticize me or talk behind my back. But Jesus loved these men so much that he didn't want them to be burdened by their betrayal. He wanted them to have peace That those events, the events, that the things that they were going to do actually were to fulfill a prophecy. Zechariah 13, 7. Zechariah prophesied, he said, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so... As we cover the events in the Garden of Gethsemane next week or in the next two weeks, you'll see this prophecy's fulfillment that strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus told them here, you will abandon me, you will leave me. And even in this chaotic moment, Jesus showed us the reality of the situation, though. He said, you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. Even if everyone on the face of the earth abandoned Jesus, he still was not alone. Because he had the presence of the Father with him. May we always remember that truth for ourselves. And Jesus said at the end of John 16, he said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, that word tribulation means pressure 
or a pressing together. Hasn't 2020 been a year of pressure? You just thought you had enough toilet paper in March. You just thought you had enough Clorox wipes. You didn't even know you needed a mask other than, you know, when you're dusting or woodworking or things like this. And now you have Houston Astros masks and, and masks for your favorite, um, you know, all these different things. And you've even made your own out of T-shirts. And, also, and then you've discovered which masks don't do anything, even though you were told they're great. 2020 has been a year of pressure. In the Gulf of Mexico right now is the 28th named storm, which ties the record for the number of storms in the Atlantic. Is anybody saying, come on, 29? No. Not the people in Louisiana. They're like, I'm sure they're praying, Lord, can something hit Texas? Just a little bit? And we're like, not this year, baby. This was your year to shine. So the word tribulation here, Jesus says, in this world you'll have pressure. You'll have a pressing together. And this world will present opportunities for you to feel the weight of the world, to feel the weight of your family, to feel the weight of your health, the pressure that those things create. And sometimes it will feel like you're being squeezed to the breaking point, but Christ offers us this promise that he has prevailed. He has overcome that through him we have the victory. And it is only through the pressing of grapes that you get wine. And in Christ we have new wine. But it is through that pressing that we receive it. There was a missionary that I knew she was serving in Europe. She and her husband were there for a year or so And they had dealt with some difficult situations while they were in this country. They only got about one hour of electricity a day. Now, how much electricity do you use in a day? Probably 23.9 hours of electricity. Because you have to power, you have to charge your phone. You have to make toast and put food in the crock pot, and you have to do all of these things. You have to turn on lights and, and uh, so much. Watch TV. It ain't going to watch itself, right? And so you have all of these things that require electricity, and they only got about one hour a day. And as soon as they got it, boy, they're powering up their computer, turning on every light, cooking every meal, you know. They never had hot water. Never. It was miserably cold there in the winters. The language was difficult, and they had no friends. There was no one else in the nation that was an American, no one else in their area, anywhere nearby that was a missionary. And so with all of this, the husband decided one day he had reached his limit. He packed his clothes And he abandoned his wife on the mission field. What a level of betrayal. To be serving Jesus Christ 
married to someone for almost three decades, only then to realize that missions work was only appealing if it was comfortable. Should she come back to the States with him? Should she leave this mission field to deal with this betrayal? Well, her decision had been made. When she had the presence of God with her, she had enough. And it was enough to get her through the darkest days. She knew that she was never alone when she had the comfort of the Father. When we deal with horribly difficult situations, may this truth give us comfort as well. That if all of the people we love abandon us, we are never alone for the Father is with us. So John 17 is a powerful prayer of unity by Jesus. It's divided up into three parts. So let's read the first section, John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. <clears throat> I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the first part of Jesus' prayer was where we see unity within God. Unity within God. Though he prayed for himself, this was not a selfish prayer. His desire was for God to be glorified. Jesus demonstrated himself as a faithful son. He had done what the father had asked him to do. He had said what the father had told him to say. He had gone where the spirit had led him to go. He had faithfully taught and ministered and discipled he acted with integrity at all times, in all things. And he, the son of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, served other people. He sought out the broken and the hurting. He confronted the self-righteous elite who thought that, they had, that, that all had to come to God through their rules and regulations and their methods. And so he had been faithful in all things. So he asked the Father to glorify him so that he could give glory back to the Father. He knew that his actions would reconcile humanity to God. He had done everything the Father had asked him to do. So he, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, prayed for the Father to receive the glory in what was coming. And that should be our prayer as well that we should be mirrors and not sponges, that we should be mirrors that reflect God's glory to others and man's praise back to the Father. The problem is when we decide we're going to become a sponge and we start soaking up the praise from men, we start soaking up the adoration and the admiration and then we're not giving that back to the Father. That praise doesn't belong to us. All that I am, all that I have, and all that I'll ever be is because of Jesus Christ in me. It's not anything that I can do. It's not, any, it's not 
anything that I have accomplished, my accomplishments are only because of the grace of Jesus Christ in me. And so when God wants to glorify his people, we don't need to soak that up as well. We need to be a mirror reflecting God's glory. And this is the example we see in Christ. If anybody could soak it up like a sponge, it's Jesus. But he says, no, I desire to glorify you. So when you glorify me, I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to reflect that back to you. Judas, Peter, Pilate, Herod, the centurions, the Pharisees, they all had parts to play in what was going to be coming in the next few hours. And the time had come. And so here we see unity within God. Number two, the second part of Jesus' prayer is when he prayed for unity within the disciples. Unity within the disciples. What's important to understand here is that Jesus isn't saying the, anything the Father doesn't know. You know, sometimes we're like, I've got to pray because God's got to know about this situation. God knows everything. He knows about the situation. So Jesus isn't praying because the Father lacks some sort of piece of information. He's, he's, he's not doing it that way. The Father knows everything. On another occasion, Jesus actually specified why he was actually praying. I mean, if anybody, he could just think because he's God. And so if he thinks something, then the Father already knows it, you know, because there's total unity within God. So he doesn't actually have to pray out loud, but he tells his disciples at another place that his prayer was strictly for the benefit of those listening. Jesus, that, that, that he and the Father are in total unity. And so speaking to the Father, Jesus stated that through his character, through his ministry, he had revealed the Father to these disciples. That Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus said, as we covered last week, how can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I do what the Father does. I say what the Father has said. And so he, Jesus has given them the Father's words. He has spent the better part of three years with these men, fellowshipping over meals with them, walking with them all over the countryside, teaching them, correcting them, speaking truth into them. And then Jesus said in verse 9, he was praying for them. Now, this is the man who multiplied the loaves and the fishes right before their very eyes. This is the man who cleansed lepers, who gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, healed the lame. This is the man whose powerful voice brought back dead men to life. And he prayed for these 11 men in the upper room. He had done everything he could to keep them safe and guarded them. He said that he had not lost any of them except Judas. And when Jesus referred to Judas, he called Judas the son of destruction. Uh, that's not uh, really a title you'd want to put on your Jewish business cards. Because if you've been listening to our Wednesday night series this past Wednesday night, we covered um, the angel that is in charge of the bottomless pit, and that angel is called Apollyon, which means destruction. And so if the angel in charge of the bottomless pit is called, that's his name, destruction, Judas is now called the son of Apollyon, the son of destruction here. So what did Jesus ask the Father 
to do for the disciples. At the end of verse 11, Jesus prayed this, that they may be one even as we are one. To truly understand the weight of unity, we have to understand the Trinity, which is a a challenging task in and of itself. To understand that God can be three persons in one God. But there's no competition among God. There's no selfishness. There's no contention. There's perfect unity between the members of the Godhead because there's perfect love. And if there is a message that needs to be reverberated from the church to our culture today, it is the message of unity within the body of Jesus Christ. Our world, our culture, our country is tearing itself apart. If you have not been convinced that the return of Jesus Christ is near, I don't know what could possibly convince you. Every single one of the signs of the times that Jesus gave that the end is near or the time is at hand has been fulfilled and accomplished. Every one of them. And the gospel has been preached around the world. Jesus says the end can come. And the one positive thing about COVID-19 is it forced churches to turn the gospel message and put it on the internet so that it is accessible and available to people all over the world. Missionaries around the world were rebroadcasting church services from churches here in America so that people could hear the gospel being preached. And so we have a country, this week especially, that has the potential to rip itself apart And if anybody is going to stand up, if anybody is going to say there can be unity among diversity, it should be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That I don't have to see eye to eye with you to walk hand in hand. That we can be diverse. We can have differences of opinion. And we can still be loving brothers and sisters in Christ. And so one pastor said that the word unity as an acronym helps us understand five characteristics of the word, uh, of what unity really is. So the U in unity represents uplift. Uplift. The greatest commandment in all of Scripture, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with the love. I'm sorry, I say that so fast. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. The second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is something that as you're driving away from our church, we have on the little signs so that it is our reminder, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. The things that you do for yourself, do for your neighbor. And so according to Jesus, that's the second greatest commandment. It's impossible to criticize, it's impossible to betray, it's impossible to demean someone when we're loving them. It's impossible to behave selfishly when we're filled with humility and selfless service towards one another. Jesus never commanded any of us to be the judge. Now, 
For those of you on social media, there is a whole lot of judgment. Oh, you like this candidate? Well, you must hate fill in the blank. The poor, the unborn, this or that. If you like this person, you then and there's so much judgment on social media. Christ never commanded us to judge. What he did say was the opposite. Judge not, lest you be judged yourself. For the same measure that you use to judge one another is the measure that God is going to use to judge you. And we're so quick to point out the little speck in somebody's eye when we have a two-by-four in our own. We're so quick to point out the faults and the flaws of others, and we, we fail to see our own. And so Jesus says, don't judge. He says, I'm the righteous judge. If we're judging people, we're not loving them. And if we're loving them, then we're not judging them. We allow the Lord to do that. So when Jesus prayed for the disciples, to the, when he prayed for the disciples to the Father, the God of all creation, that must have encouraged them. That must have built them up that Jesus is praying for us. That Jesus had hand-selected them for the task that they would do. And, and instead of the usual way it was, where disciples would come up to a rabbi and they would say to the rabbi, Rabbi, I will follow you. And the rabbi would go, okay, come on. So in the typical way, the disciples would choose their rabbi, but Jesus didn't do it that way. He did it the opposite way. He would walk up to his disciples and he hand-selected them and said, follow me. Follow me. And to be, to be chosen by a rabbi was wild. That was countercultural, but that's the way Jesus did it. And their lives were changed forever as a result. Number two, the, the N in the word unity represents need. Three years ago, this Sunday, actually, um, the first Sunday in November was when I officially uh, became the interim pastor um, for the time period after our former senior pastor, Luke, left. And so I became the senior pastor. And I believe my very first sermon series was Blessed to be a Blessing. And I've said it a bunch, and I'll say it a bunch more, that God blesses us to be a blessing. Um, God has given you resources not to be a reservoir of his blessings, but to be a river of blessings that flows out to other people. And one way we display unity is looking after the needs of others. Feed the hungry. Clothe the needy. Give shelter to the homeless. Use our God-given resources to help others. There was a little boy who wanted a bicycle for his birthday. And as his father was tucking him into bed one night, the little boy prayed with a very loud voice, God, I really want that blue bike from Walmart. The boy's grandparents were visiting from out of town, so the dad told the son, don't be so loud. The father said to him, son, God's not deaf. To which the little boy responded, I know God's not deaf, but grandpa is. The boy understood that God meets the needs of his children by moving on the hearts of others. 
Sometimes those others need to be made aware of the needs. When we see the needs of others and we meet them, we are demonstrating unity in the body. The third letter in the word unity, I, represents integrity. Integrity. We demonstrate unity when we act with integrity in our personal life and in our dealings with others. Uh, My father always told me um, so that I would never, ever forget it. He said, keep your word even when it hurts because you're either a man of integrity or you aren't. Keep your word even when it hurts. Jesus walked in perfect integrity because he always did what he said he would do, and he never said anything he didn't mean. He didn't tease people. He didn't respond to them sarcastically or snarky. He didn't say one thing to them and yet do another. He didn't promise the lame man that he could walk and then say, just kidding. He, didn't, he, he, he was a model of integrity. And that is what we should strive for as well. The T in unity represents trust. Trust. I know how hard it is to trust God. God calls us to places where we have to put our unwavering trust in him. And it is difficult at times because he's trying to teach us we can trust him. For those of you that have seen, and I'm going to spoil it, but you've had plenty of time to watch this movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. The window for me spoiling the movie is over because I'm going to do it right now. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indy gets to this part of he's trying to save his father's life. And uh, so he gets to this place where there is a chasm between him and where he needs to be. And so... The, the, according to the instructions, only a leap from the lion's head will cause you to get across the chasm or whatever the line is. And so Indiana Jones is looking in this lion's, his lion is right here, stone lion, and there, there's no way he can jump across this. The distance is way too great. And so all he can see is the chasm. He cannot see the path from where he is to where he needs to be. But if you've seen the movie, then you know that while the path was invisible to his eyes, it was actually there the whole time. It was a path of rock that was carved and looked just like the chasm wall that he was facing. But it was actually a path. And he just couldn't see it from his vantage point. He had to step out in faith and trust that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I love that word substance because it's actually made up of a, a prefix and then the word stance. So sub, which means below, and stance means to stand. And so faith is what God puts below you so that you can stand. That when you take a step of faith, faith becomes the bridge when you walk where there is no road. When you take a step of faith, God will meet you with level ground. And that's what it's like to walk with God, to have to walk in a place where we don't see the road. We may not see the path, but it doesn't mean there isn't one. We have to trust that God is working even when we can't see anything happening. 
A great example, Exodus 14. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Israel is camped at the Red Sea. Um, they've got nowhere to go. Pharaoh's army has marched up, uh, caught up with them, and is planning to recapture them because the Israelites don't have anything but pots and pans. They don't, they don't have any weapons. The only thing they took from Egypt are the things that they borrowed from the Egyptians. God says, I'll give you great favor with the Egyptians. Go and borrow their pots and pans and all of the gold and all this stuff. And that way you will actually plunder Egypt because they'll be so sick and ready for you to leave. They'll let you have it all. All they had were pots and pans. Do you know that is seriously close quarters combat right there? To have to swing at somebody with a pot or a pan. Now, I don't know the way you were raised. Maybe your mama that disciplined you with a pot or pan upside the head. Hopefully not. But um, that is not how you would defend yourself against swords and spears and chariots and horses. Throwing pots and pans at them. And so there was nothing for them to do. There was nowhere to go. They had no way to defend themselves. And God had led them to that place. And so all night, an east wind had been blowing on the camp. And in the morning, I've told this story before, but just to remind you, in the morning, God took that wind and he slammed it straight down on the sea with such force that it parted the waters and it dried the seabed so that the Israelites didn't even get mud on their sandals. They walked across on dry ground. Now, they had just thought, the night before, it was a pleasant evening breeze. Thank you, God, for this breeze. Right before, we're going to be massacred by the Egyptians. At least we got one nice night out of it. But God had been preparing for the morning. And if we want to be in unity with God and unity with one another, we have to learn to trust him. That he has not led us to anywhere that he is not aware of, that he doesn't know about. He hasn't led us into a wilderness that he doesn't already have the plan to lead us out. So he wants us to learn to trust him and learn to trust others. And the Y in unity, the letter Y represents yielding. To yield is to surrender. Now first, obviously, to be Christians, we have to yield and surrender to Jesus Christ. You did that to some degree when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but that was just the first and easiest step. Next must come the surrendering of other things. Surrendering your wants, surrendering your needs, surrendering your desires, your plans, your ambitions, and your control. Your control over everything oh no the way we spend our time the way we spend our money the way we handle and decide everything we have to surrender control every single area of your life must come under his control that is the only way you have unity with god once we yield to Christ, then we can yield to one another. The chief role of those in ministry, your pastors and, and other people in ministry, it's found in Ephesians chapter 4. The end of verse 12, the beginning of verse 13, this is what it says. The role of ministry is to equip the saints, that's you, 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. My job is to help disciple you, to build you up in the body of Christ, to equip you to do the work of the ministry, where you live, where you work. And that ministry will continue until we are in complete unity and maturity in the faith. So your responsibility, your role is to yield and make room for me to speak into your life. Sometimes that's to tell you hard and painful truths. But hopefully you've learned over the past years to give me a little bit of room to do that. And as you grow in the faith, I yield and make room for you to step up and minister in the ways that God has gifted you. And so every single body has different parts that do different things, different functions. When we yield to one another, we allow our spiritual gifts to be used by God so that we are pursuing spiritual maturity together. All right? Jesus continued his prayer in John 17, getting to the final part of the prayer. John 17, verses 20 through 22, Jesus said, I do not ask for these only. I'm not asking just for the disciples in the room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So the last part of Jesus' prayer was where he prayed for unity within the church. Unity within the church. Jesus looked down the prophetic telescope of time to see what his church would eventually become, what it would look like, and, and who all would be part of it. And here Jesus prayed for those who would believe in him through the message of the disciples. So every Christian is included in this part of Jesus' prayer. His desire was not just for unity among the disciples, but that his whole church would rest in that unity. Now, it's not that we have to be assimilated to dress the same, be gifted the same, think the same. What's amazing about unity is that God enables us to be one while giving us such rich diversity. We all have different backgrounds, different racial ethnicities, different home lives, and we have a spouse, a different spouse, with all of their background and culture and differences. And only in Christ do we see true unity within the body. There is a... a, when the, so let me just give you a little bit of a little nugget here. It's not in my notes, so I'm going to try to do my best. So in Hebrew, the word for man is ish, and for woman is isha. And when you put those together, um, the the value of those words in Hebrew becomes esh. Um, I'm sorry. Let me back up. When you take out the one of the letters that represents God's covenant name in those words, it becomes esh, which means fire. What that means is when you have a man and a woman together and you don't have God, you're going to have fire. And it's not a positive connotation. It is contention. And so the only way there is unity, true unity, between a husband and a wife is when there is God 
in the midst. And when you don't have God in the mix, when he's not part of your spiritual, when he's not part of your marriage, there's going to be contention. There's going to be destruction, fire in a very negative way. And so there, there, God's presence has to be present in order for us to be in unity. And only in Christ can we ever see a group this big or bigger in any sort of unity. If we don't have unity, we'll tear each other apart. But our goal isn't to do that. Our goal is to build one another up. Now, how do we do that? Let's look at the end of John 17, 26. Jesus says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. When I love someone, their differences are not a disadvantage. They're actually a blessing. They are strong where I am weak. They have perspective where I do not. They have an experience that I haven't had. They're they're gifted where I am not gifted. If everybody on the worship team was a drummer, there wouldn't be any musicians on the platform. Sorry, that was a joke against drummers. Drummers get that, but they don't like it. They don't, they don't like being told they're not really a musician. I know, I know. I'm a drummer. I know, I get it. It's painful, but it's okay. That's why you have to learn a second instrument. <clears throat> if everybody in the worship team were drummers, we would never learn harmonies or melodies. We would never learn anything other than the rhythm of the song. Yeah, we get that it's 68 BPM at 4-4, but what I need to know is what's the harmony part? And a drummer can't really tell you that. Well, I just hit the tom at that part. I don't know what to tell you. And so there has to be diversity so that there can be true unity. And in Christ, we achieve unity among diversity. It's never something to be ignored. It's something to be celebrated. It's easy to yield to someone else's ability When your heart is filled with love for God and love for one another. I'll ask our worship team to come on up this morning. Would you stand with me? We are at a time when our world has been completely changed. Our culture, our routines... Our plans, our habits, you are washing your hands more now than you ever thought you would ever do. And if you own stock in Purell, you, are, you should be tithing to the church because you have got to be raking it in at this point. 2020 has changed everything. And this week, Our nation will head to the polls and vote to see who will lead this nation. And if there's ever a time when the church of Jesus Christ and Christians need to be displaying unity, it is now. One of the things that I I actually posted on my Facebook page, and some of you may not even follow me because you don't like the things I post on my Facebook page, but I, I stand by this one. It said, imagine having... The God of all creation, imagine having Jesus Christ forgive you of every horrible thing you've ever done against him and then hating someone for the way they vote. 
that's not displaying unity. That's not displaying love. And everybody has very strong feelings. I have yet to meet someone who's ambivalent about who should lead this country. Most people have very strong feelings about who should be leading this country for the next four years. However, our unity is not based on who the president is. Our unity is not based on a political party. It's not found in a political party. Our unity is not based on us agreeing on every issue because a lot of us don't. Our unity is found in Jesus Christ alone. We are one in the body of Christ. And if we are not demonstrating that love, if we're not demonstrating that unity among one another, the world will never know that we're Christ's disciples. He said, you will, the world will know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And so Jesus' final thought, his expectation of us is found in verse 22. He says, that they may be one, even as we are one. Christ wants us to be in such perfect and loving unity, just the way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. No contention, no strife, no discord. There can be disagreement without discord. Just perfect, selfless love where we uplift one another, where we put the needs of others above our own, where we act with integrity, where we trust one another, and where we yield to one another's strengths. Then we'll be walking in the kind of unity that Christ walked in and the kind of unity that he expects us to walk in as well. But it is only through Jesus Christ.